Blog Talk Radio. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity around the world? America has created the longest peacetime economic expansion in our history. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Good common sense and sound judgment of the American people and their essential love of justice. Kazuvan for February 6, 2022. I'm your host, David McLaughlin, and joining me as always, welcome Catherine Smith. Greetings from Atlanta. And welcome Tim Shiflett. Good evening, sir. All right. Uh, excited to have you all on the show tonight. Um, really excited for this show. Um, it, it just was a very um, wonderful, um, you know, serendipitous uh, booking, if you will. I had originally booked another guest that we were very excited to have on the show. Um, his work schedule would not allow him to come on. And one of our old friends, um, and this was before the things in Canada that we'll talk about uh, happened, really um, you know, became, I guess, American news and got in front of us the same way. Um, Evan Scrimshaw agreed to come on the show. And um, he is, of course, in Canada, and where this um, protest, um, uh, and some people call it occupation, of the Canadian capital, Ottawa, is occurring. And so um, Evan's going to be calling in shortly, and we're going to discuss that and some other things we have planned to discuss with Evan. Um, he's just, you know, the, a really good master of numbers and uh, politically and, and different things, but then, of course, being a Canadian resident, knowing uh, you know, having access to far more can- Canadian uh, news sources than we do, um, he can fill us in. But kind of set the table, um, I'll be honest, I think I had heard little pieces of this, and it didn't really register with me because, you know, Ottawa trucks, I mean, that wouldn't, you know, immediately go, whoa. And then as the weekend progressed, it was like, oh, this is like a huge monster deal. And it just seems to be growing and gaining influence outside of Ottawa. Um, Catherine, what are your thoughts on what you've seen and heard so far? Well, it sounds like quite the um, quite the you know consternation from a bunch of people who object to vaccine mandates and sort of our usual uh, you know contrarians, I guess you might say, but. Uh, I guess there's been quite a bit of destruction of some businesses in downtown Ottawa and quite a bit of disruption in the neighborhood. So, you know, that's never good. You know, I think we all agree that, you know, people should have the freedom to protest and express their views, um, but in a peaceful and organized way, not in chaos and violence and destruction. Yeah, um, that, that's tomorrow night. Uh, before we even get into our normal material, we're going to use this as an object lesson about freedom of assembly and speech and the, the appropriate way to um, protest um, in my class. That, that, that's going to be the lead-off discussion. But right now, we're so excited. Uh, we previewed just a second ago. Join us for now countless times our Canadian correspondent, but he covers <laughs> all political numbers all across the world. Welcome back to the Kudzu Vibe, Mr. Evan Scrimshaw. Thank you for having me. Nice to be on. Yes. Well, Evan, I know you're in Canada, and I, I, I want to say I think I read in your bio on Twitter or somewhere that you're actually in Ottawa, correct? Yeah, I live in, uh, I live in suburban Ottawa and went to university downtown, so I know the area very, very well. Well, excellent. Well, give us a home country, home province, home metro area view. I mean, I get the right to protest. We live in the capital city, and that necessarily means that there are certain experiences living in the capital city that you just have to put up with, right? And that's fine, right? You are going to have protests. You're going to have issues come up. I get all of it. Um, At some point, it crossed over from being a protest to an occupation. It has become 
impossible for downtown residents to sleep at night because there are horns going until 2 a.m. some some mornings. The main shopping mall in the city, it's a two-minute walk from Parliament Hill. It's a wide, expansive center. It's where a lot of uh, homeless and displaced people will go during the day, especially in a cold Audubon winter, to warm up. There's something like 1,500 uh, employees employed at the various stores there. It's been closed for, I think we're on eight, day eight of it. It might be closed tomorrow. We don't know yet. And you are, for, for people who, who claim to care about the working class, who care to be, who care, supposedly care about the working people, right? What are you going to do about the 1,500 people who can't get a paycheck right now? What are you going to do about the fact that you just wiped out a quarter of February pay? They don't care. And at some point, you've made your point. You're not going to get anywhere. And at some point, get the hell out of my city because the residents of this city are not just puppets in your war against Canadian COVID restrictions. And at some point, if you actually care about people and freedom, the ability to sleep free at night seems like a pretty important freedom that you should care about. Yes. Now, I heard that the um, protesters had agreed to stop blowing their horns, I guess, when church services might have going to been occur, and I don't even know if church services could happen based on um, the logistics of what's going on right now, but uh, from 9 to 1 o'clock. And then there's been multiple videos showing that that was just ignored. And it could be that some people that were leading this agreed, and then and you have a whole bunch of others that don't agree with the leaders, and therefore you have no leaders. Um, what went on with that um, a failed agreement, if you will? So an Ottawa lawyer is offering his services to a, a class of downtown, center town residents because the Ottawa city and the police force have been um, useless, to be kind. And so a fairly prominent Ottawa lawyer said, well, if you're not going to do anything to stop this, I'm going to try. They found a, I can't, you know, 21-year-old uh, public servant who was willing to be the lead plaintiff. They went to court yesterday, and the uh, representatives of the convoy did agree to a uh, moratorium on the honking, which didn't happen at all last night. I, I know people who live downtown, and a bunch of journalists uh, also were there, and it was still going at 10, 11 o'clock at night last night. The hope is that so, – so there have been sort of surges of people in downtown on the two weekends that this has happened, and then more people – and then they have left, and it's been a sort of core group in the city during the week. And I think the hope is that the core group will either tire of this and leave or at the very least will be able to control themselves better to make this – Again, less of an occupation and more of a more of a legitimate protest. Yes. Um, well, I've got so many more questions uh, that I could possibly ask, and so I'm going to reserve the right to come back on this topic and then other things, of course, we got. But I want to be fair to Kat, uh, Tim and Catherine, and then have Tim ask some questions, Catherine ask some questions about this uh, auto situation, and even where it could go from here. And then if they, they have some things I, I want to still ask about, I'm going to come back. So, Tim? Oh, good evening, Evan. Thank you for being with us tonight. Um, you, you mentioned that the uh, government of the city of Ottawa and the police force have basically not done anything. Why, why is that? So, if you want to be charitable to them, they didn't think it was going to be as big as it was. And then they thought they would come in for a weekend. They'd park in, on the main drag right in front of Parliament Hill. They'd make their point and they'd leave. Right. Mm -hmm. And then they never left. And now they're scrambling and now they're too entrenched. And the thing about Ottawa is it's a fairly compact city, right? It's, um, uh, -huh. It's much smaller than, than like, you know, London or, or equivalent national capitals. And so 
it's really hard to maneuver around. But what seems to have happened is basically they got overwhelmed by the amount of people who got there. And then they don't really have a way out. And everyone is Mm -hmm. trying to pass the buck. The Mm -hmm. mayor is trying to pass the buck to the police chief. The police chief is trying to pass the buck to the federal government and the the RCMP because they want the federal police's help. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone is also trying to get the province to do something, but the because the premier's from Toronto and also doesn't really care about Ottawa that much, he's just kind of content to let whatever happened in Ottawa happen. And mm-hmm. the prime minister doesn't want to do anything actively because he doesn't want to give the impression that if you park some convoys, if you park some trucks in front of Parliament Hill, you get a meeting with the prime minister, despite the fact that you you know, show up with Nazi flags and, uh, you know, dance on one of our most sacred war memorials, right? And so Mm -hmm. everyone's trying to play chicken with responsibility and no one is willing to or even able to just make the concrete decision that we're just going to start towing, we're just going to start towing these, these trucks, move them out of the downtown core, and then basically just deal with it from where they are. And until someone is willing to do that, then we're just in, we're in standstill unless they choose to leave. Yeah. So, so have the local authorities asked federal authorities, uh, you know, made a formal request for them to come in and do something? Not really. No, partially because no one really knows what, there's a lot of there's a lot of people telling other people to do something and uh-huh. <laughs> not a lot of people not a lot of people with a concrete plan of okay so we're going to call for 300 officers or 500 officers or we're going to ask for 2000 soldiers to work for us to do x no one knows what x is or no one is willing to say no one's willing to say we need to do this and uh-huh. No one's willing to to risk. Well, I mean, it could be a, a, a genuinely volatile situation, but uh-huh. at some point, the known horribleness of what this is doing to center town residents has to outweigh the, you know, potential bad of a more forceful response potentially going anywhere. Yeah. So, a final question before I send it over to Catherine: If these protests do not result in what these drivers want, and you indicated inevitably that's not going to happen. Have they said what they will do then? Are they being silent about it and just sitting there? So the problem with the convoy is that it's it's like uh, multiple different groups, right? It's Truckers uh-huh. who are just aggrieved with the fact that they can't do cross-border travel right now. There's uh, people generally displeased with the fact that for the entire month of January, uh, residents of Ontario couldn't go into a restaurant and couldn't go to a bar and watch a game. And then there are legitimate anarchists and fascists who would like to overthrow Justin Trudeau's government because they think Justin Trudeau is a far-left communist. And so (laughs) there are people who say they aren't leaving until Justin Trudeau is no longer prime minister. There are people who say they're not leaving until the border issue is resolved. And there are people who are saying they're not leaving until lockdowns are resolved. The problem being, though, the federal government aren't the people imposing the lockdowns, and therefore it is not on Justin Trudeau to overturn the decision made by the Ontario Premier. So, no, there is no exit strategy, and there's no no one seems to have a way that we could, you know, build the off-ramp, right? To, 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 to torture the analogy, right? The, there's, no, there's no off-ramp. There's no way to get them even close to getting out of there. I see. Well, I'm I'm gonna I tell you what, Evan, I'm gonna turn it over to Catherine now. Maybe you and her can figure out some way to stop that <laughs> and pass up there, Catherine. <laughs> Thanks so much for being on the show tonight, Evan. I um I really enjoyed I don't know if enjoyed is the right term, but 
I thought your um, piece on Substack, what was the name of it? Convoys. It was from a couple days ago. It was really good. Uh, Convoy. I am blanking actually on what the what the title is. I'll pull it up in a second while you ask your question. Convoy. But I appreciate the kind words. On the losing end. Um, Yes. Yes. I I really related to it. It it sounded like something that I would write, but much you you did a much better job than I would have. but I've been wondering about this, um, about this business in Ottawa. Is this something that's been, I mean, obviously the cross-border um, transport is obviously a COVID-related problem, but are these, um, has this been sort of brewing like in rural areas or other places in Ottawa or across Canada, and it just finally came to a head and they came to Ottawa to protest, or is this like pretty much like just, popped up in the last couple of weeks. So there was a like previous, uh, I want to say it was 20, yeah, it would have been 2019. So before the 2019 election, there was a similar convoy style thing. Um, I think it was called United We Roll, which was, came from the West to show Western alienation and Western frustration at the central Canadian elite of Justin Trudeau and the, you know, Toronto to Montreal corridor. And they came, they protested, they met with some conservative politicians, and then they went home. And these people are frustrated and the liberals do like laughably, horrifically bad in Western Canada. Um, And there is a lot of genuine frustration because Justin Trudeau is a, Justin Trudeau is the exact kind of politician that these people are predisposed to hate. His father screwed over the West. The Trudeau name is mud in, you know, the vast majority of the West. And he's a cosmopolitan big city elite, right? Like he literally was born into the official residence for prime ministers in this country, right? He is literally the embodiment of the Canadian elite. I I grew up in Michigan, and so I remember his father. Like, I remember all the people around his father. So I I get it. Yeah, and and so they've always hated elected, And and now people are just at their wit's end, right? COVID has – and I don't mean this just for them, and I don't mean this even in a negative way, but, like, everyone is just – busted at this point, right? Everyone's brains are a little bit fried and we're all going a little crazy at this point, right? Like, yeah. that's a apolitical, I mean, un- unbiased point, right? Like, I, my brain's fried too, right? We all are. And this is the, like, there is some definite, like, legitimate frustration, right? And we're in Canada and we're under harsher restrictions than you guys are. And we're looking at packed football stadiums every week Right, we're looking at packed NHL arenas or packed NBA, you know, arenas, and we're going. We can't have this. I can't even go. I can't even go to the bar with my friends, and they're livid. And I get it, and I genuinely understand the frustration, and it is real frustration. But at some point, when you when you become an occupying force in the downtown capital, I lose my sympathy for you. Oh yeah, I mean it's totally uh, uh, irresponsible and. Um... Uh, sort of, uh, you know, against all the things that you're fighting for, right? Like you're you're looking for freedom, and you're, then you're restricting all these people who live down there and work down there. So it's it's not very reflective, I guess is the the you know nice way to put it. They're not really thinking about the impact that they're having and how it's the same thing they're complaining about. But I, I was just wondering if there, this was something that had been bubbling up, if there's a lot of this sort of conservative, if there's, um, and, and it sounds like there is, like there's, a, especially in the West. And it's interesting you should mention that because I do know some people who live, not very well, but people who live in Western Canada. And when I, you know, I love Justin Trudeau. He's like, I love a, I love a you know, a big city elite. I mean, that's like what I'm all about. <laughs> and I just remember talking to them about that, about him, and they just like, oh, we don't like him. I'm like, oh, okay, let's not talk about that. <laughs> um, well, it's very interesting, and uh, I just hope it doesn't come our way, but who knows? 
And with that, I'm going to pass it back to David for more questions. Thank you so much. Well, um, Evan, I want to talk talk about the um, polling situation of this. I did look up some polls that were taken, I guess, before this protest started, and it looked like it was anywhere from 60, 70, 52 percent of Canadians supported, um, you know, some vaccine or, you know, mandates, uh, COVID measures. I mean, obviously they have like a whole list of grievances, and some which aren't even COVID related. It's just this amalgamation we see in a lot of these protests, um, like January 6th and others. But how, have there, has there been any polling or any indication of public opinion during the past week of if this is moving the needle one way or the other at this point? So uh, basically, I'm just going to use this fact as a starting point, and then we'll get into the numbers from this week. About 70% of Canadians got vaccinated reasonably quickly, right? I mean, before there was a lot of, you know, before there were restrictions, before you needed to show proof of vaccination to get into a bar, any of that, about 70%. And so... Our vaccination rates have gone up from there, but um, in terms of people who are sort of like pretty okay with it without a lot of push, that's that's basically where you were. Uh, an advocates poll from this week showed 68% of Canadians uh, have little or no, um, I can't remember the exact word they use in the poll, but little to no connection with or agreement with the stated views of the convoy. And about 30% have a reasonable amount or a lot of um support for, for what they're saying. And a innovative research group poll showed slightly higher numbers for support for the convoy. Although support for this uh, lack of support for the convoy, people who thought they were you know going too far, uh, rose sharply in their in the second half of their data because they had some data from before the first weekend and then they had more from after. And there was a sharp rise in disapproval of the of the convoy and of the truckers and all of this once they actually saw, oh, no, this isn't a legitimate protest about, you know, COVID restrictions. This has become a, you know, this has just become a, a sort of melting pot for all of the worst people in Canada. So, you know, 60, 40, 70, 30 sort of think that this has gone too far. And that's basically about the amount of people who had to, uh, who either are vaccinated, who either, and that 30 to 40% is about the same number of people who are either, you know, vaccinated, who, were, who, were, who only got vaccinated because they had to either for work or for, you know, to go to a hockey game and, or they are vaccinated. So, yeah. Yeah, it seems like, and I'm seeing it in, in other places as well, not just Canada. They just don't understand democracy. They're, they have these hardcore beliefs, and they're in the minority and sometimes the extreme minority, and they believe so strongly in what they believe in, but they don't understand that in a democracy, if you hold an opinion well outside the majority, you've got to change hearts and minds or else you're going to continue to be in the extreme minority. And in some cases, you're just going to be in the extreme minority because you have an opinion well outside the mainstream. And I think all of us probably have some opinion about something that is just well outside the mainstream. Hopefully not, you know, medical information, but something. And you just got to realize that that's the fact. What's it going to take to get these folks to understand what a democracy does to function? I think most people, I I do genuinely think most Canadians are understanding that we had an election and the right lost, right? They did. There was no, you know, our conservative leader conceded on election night. It wasn't like the world's most gracious speech, but like it was a concession. He admitted that Justin Trudeau will be prime minister, right? There was no claims of fraud. There were no claims that, you know, we counted ballots were somehow being changed or any of that. But the problem is, is that, and I wrote about it in the piece that uh, Kathleen mentioned, um, these people have lost, right? And I don't mean they've lost on COVID. They have lost the sort of like greater generational fight about what society is, right? I was born in 1997. I just turned 25. And 
the world I was born into in terms of how it views gay people, trans people, uh, women, racial minorities, right, is completely different than it was 25 years ago. Is it far enough for me? Of course not. And I always will want greater equality and, and greater barriers broken down. But the world is so radically different now than it was then that people understood how the world worked then and they don't understand how the world works now. Mm-hmm. And for them, the, 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 the piece I wrote, it was a riff in parts on Neil Young's The Losing End When You're On. And it's, it's about the fact that these people have lost the war and this is in some ways the last, the last fight right? They're, they're, they're given everything they got because they, this is the fight they wanted. This is, this is all they got. All they got left is this fight because they're losing. There's no, there's no hope for a like staunchly conservative right-wing platform winning in Canada. There's no, there's no realistic prospect of a, you know, pro-life family values, social conservative government in this country. And they aren't big fans of that fact. And they're just grasping at straws, grasping at anything to try and get some semblance of control back in their lives, some, some, some sense of understanding how the world works. And they're not going to find it here, but they don't have a better option. Yeah, I mean, it just seems like the sooner they understand the fundamental math of a democracy, the better off they'll be to where they can actually work for whatever they might want. And, and some of it may never come. Well, let me ask you one more question, but it's actually not about Canada and the truckers' convoy. It's about exporting this thing. Um, I read that, you know, there were some trucks heading to Canberra and Australia. And then I heard we even had a congressional representative in um, Georgia that advocated for a convoy in March 1st, which would be a long planning time for both sides to prevent it and to, to get it organized. And then I also... This today, there was a lot of news about, you know, converge on Los Angeles before the Super Bowl and shut the Super Bowl down to halt. Do you see this thing picking up to where it's exported to other areas and probably most exclusively D.C. and Los Angeles? Uh, they'll try and it won't work because we saw sort of copycat movements in Toronto and Vancouver this weekend. And Toronto police and Vancouver police just like dealt with it pretty easily because they knew what was coming. Right. The, yeah. I use this analogy with a friend, but um, the Ottawa protest was a knuckleball, right. And you don't know where knuckleball is going. And that's why the great knuckleball pitchers were so effective because you don't know where it's going. Now we know, now we know the playbook. Now we know how this works. And so if they try in L.A. for the Super Bowl, if they try in D.C., uh, you know, if they try in Sydney or Canberra, if they try in London, it's not going to work because all of those police departments know the playbook. They know what to do. They know what the game plan is, and they're going to take it more seriously than the Ottawa police did because the Ottawa police thought it was fairly – I think the Ottawa police basically said, oh, this is a bunch of noise, and we don't have to take it very seriously – and no one else is going to make that mistake. Yeah. Well, I mean, I tell you what, in a month's time, if there's been no more convoys anywhere else, I'm going to say, Evan knew. And that's it's just all the long and the short of it. Evan knew. He told us. Um, so hopefully for the, the um, civility of our world, uh, that will be um, how it goes. Well, now uh, let's change gears. We were going to get kind of where we had originally booked you for, before us in America, uh, at least myself and, and others, uh, learned about the polite of what was going on in your country uh, the, uh, the past 10 days, um, talk about some more political news. And so often on the show, just never enough, we want to ask what The Rock is cooking, and we never get to discuss what The Rock is cooking. And for people like, what is he talking about? We know Evan's big on the betting markets, and um, – and keeping up with those and seeing trends. And I've noticed for several months now, you know, if you look at who's the most likely Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, number two, Kamala Harris, number three, Pete Buttigieg. I think there's some money going towards Hillary Clinton, maybe uh, Representative AOC, a lot of the usual names you would think. 
But somewhere in that top, you know, five to seven is this non-political name, Dwayne the Rock Johnson. Evan, what's going on there? People really like over-extrapolating from one event, right? People like overreacting to single things that happened. And Donald Trump won, right? And he was this, you know, famous uh, – I, I mean, TV Donald Trump was very charismatic. I, I wouldn't necessarily say so about a politician Trump, but, you know, Trump had this telegenic charisma, right? He was good on TV. And people are, are sort of trying to will – the rock into a similar sort of career path. I think partially just because it's funny and, you know, we need stuff to talk about, right. And talking about the rock running for president is more interesting than trying to parse the, what the conference committee will do between the two versions of the competitiveness acts that are, you know, been passed in the house and Senate. Right. And the other thing is, is that like, if you're trying to find a prospective sort of, you know, come from nowhere presidential candidate, you could probably do much worse than the rock, right? He would be able to self fund to a pretty substantial degree. He is charismatic as all can be. And people just like talking about it. And also if you put the rock in an article headline, uh, you're going to get some clicks because like that's just how algorithms work. Um, it, it's not going to happen. Like, the – I almost think – like, the problem with, with The Rock is that he's he's apolitical, so he could theoretically run in either primary. Uh, I actually think he would be much better as a Ross Perot-style break-the-system third-party candidate if he were to ever want to run. The the main difference between The Rock, though, and Trump – and I'm even going to say Dr. Oz, too, because he's the obvious – he's the obvious other corollary to celebrity candidates is people used to view Donald Trump kind of as like a pseudo public intellectual. And I know that sentence sounds insane to say out loud after, you know, uh, person, woman, man, camera, TV, but um, like Trump used to be the, the reason there was so much dirt on Donald Trump in terms of like him flip flopping on the Iraq war and, stuff like that is he was, he was just used to get interviewed by Wolf Blitzer on CNN at like five o'clock. And why are you interviewing like a TV host on his views on the Iraq war is like a separate and distinct conversation about like American media, I guess. But people viewed Trump as a smart person <laughs> whose opinion mattered. And I don't think anyone has ever treated, uh, I don't think anyone has ever treated uh, the rock that way. And so I think some of the Trump electability and some of the reason he was able to catch on is that people genuinely thought, oh, he's smart. I know he's smart. And I think that'd be different for someone who was famous for being an actor as opposed to someone who was famous for being a businessman, however good his business acumen actually was. I'll go ahead and tell you why I think this is maybe more interesting than some of these names that just get thrown around. You know, Rock did uh, speak at the 2004 uh, RNC convention. He endorsed Joe Biden, which after the James Clyburn endorsement, um, there, there are many ways the way it came and the way it was laid out. It was one of the more impactful endorsements um, that happened. Uh, third, if the show Young Rock, which I've seen it, you know, some of the episodes, it's set up in a way in which he looks back um, at his life through the lens of his future presidential campaign. So this is something that he's obviously thought about in some way, even if it's just a, fiction, a, a vehicle for a pseudo-fictional, realistic bio show he's done. And then finally, you know, I think you put it best. I mean, hopefully the, the Democrats in 2022 and 2024 will be in a better electoral landscape than they are now. But if they were in, like – you know, Donald Trump getting, you know, reelected is imminent and anything has to stop him and the rock is that anything, then I think anything to Democrats would be better than Donald Trump returning to power. So that's why I kinda lend a little more credence to this than I have some other 
you know, sideshow type um, uh, speculation in the past. Any thoughts? Yeah. No, those are those are all uh, actually much more reasonable cases than I was. Like I hadn't thought of it that way, and I'm actually. Uh, yeah, no, that's, that's all very fair. I will also say that he has like less stuff that he would have to walk away from than like Mark Cuban or Mark Zuckerberg, who are sort of have usually been the two like, oh well, post Trump, anyone can be president, so why not like Cuban? Uh, I don't think Mark Cuban wants to be president. I think he just wants to do Shark Tank, run his companies, and go to forty-five, fifty maps games a year. Like that's what he wants to do with his life. Whereas, like, you know, The Rock doesn't really have as many sort of things that he would have to walk away from to do it. I mean, you you would need to be in, you know, any port in a storm territory, but if you're in any port in a storm, it, it, it's not the craziest idea. Yeah, just a, something to kind of look at on the fringe, and we'll continue to see what the betting markets do. Um, who knows? Maybe our conversation today influenced it one way or another. But I'm going to pass this thing on to Tim. We'll pass it on to Catherine for questions about all kind of other things across American politics. Tim? So, Evan, one race I've been watching, 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 watching is the Democratic primary race for the U.S. Senate up in Pennsylvania. Now, uh, a new internal poll has the Lieutenant Governor Fetterman 30 points ahead of Representative Lamb, yet... When I turn on MSNBC, CNN, uh, and so on and so forth, the pundits keep talking about a razor-thin close race in Pennsylvania. So what gives? What's your take on it? Is it a close race? No. And the thing is, is like, I so I've written before that I think Connor Lamb is a better general election candidate than John Fetterman. Um, uh-huh. I know that's – I think that's pretty much consensus opinion amongst, uh, like, people who have, like, thought about general election dynamics um, quite uh-huh. a bit. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the consensus opinion makers are more – hold more centrist views, which are in line with uh, Connor Lamb's general disposition. And mm-hmm. they want it to be a race. Because, frankly, they want Connor Lamb to be the next Democratic nominee because they think Democrats have a better chance of winning the race if it's Connor Lamb. And so they're trying desperately to make a faltering Lamb campaign seem more competitive because Lamb has done a lot of, like, micro stuff very well, right? He has a very impressive slate of local endorsements, union ties, Philadelphia, because both him and – because both him and Fetterman are from Western Pennsylvania, who Philly's going to pick the Philly and the Philly caller is going to pick the nominee, and so mm-hmm. he's doing a lot of like good stuff in the micro, but his campaign just has no cut through with the uh-huh. primary electorate at all. And yes, it was a Fetterman internal poll which had Fetterman up three points, but if Lamb had a poll showing him down ten, he would have released it by now, right? Yeah, that, because if that's you a good could point. show. Because Chantel Brown released an internal, I think, which had her down. I want to say seven. Do not get mad at me if I'm off by a point or two. But Uh the reason she released an internal down seven is because the consensus narrative was she was down 25. And Uh being down seven with momentum was a push, and it got money going to her. And so even if Lamb Uh had a poll showing him down 15 or 10, that's still better than the narrative being you're done. It would push uh-huh. money to you. It would push energy to your campaign. And the fact uh-huh. that he's not releasing it means he probably doesn't have it. And if he doesn't have it, the primary is in May, and he's running out of time, and he doesn't seem to have a strategy to get out of neutral. Yeah. Now, over on the Republican side, uh, a lot of people have, have snickered privately and laughed and haw-hawed about Dr. Oz. I'm not among them. I'm one of these guys that thinks in a lot of situations, all else being unequal, that money is the great equalizer in a lot of these campaign fights. And Dr. Oz has no shortage of that. What do you rate his chances of getting the Republican nomination? 
I have placed a fairly substantial amount of my own money on Dr. Oz to be the next Republican nominee because uh-huh. not even really for anything to do with Dr. Oz. It's for one simple thing. Okay? He's running against David McCormick. And uh-huh. David McCormick served as an undersecretary to some cabinet department under George W. Bush, moved to Connecticut, mm-hmm. and has worked in private equity for the last decade. Mm-hmm. When was the last time a pro-gay marriage, moderate Bush-era Republican won a statewide primary in the GOP? Mm-hmm. You, 2010? you make a good point there. It's been a long time, <laughs> right? Because in right. 2010... And 2014, you had the Tea Party insurgencies in these sorts of open sea races. Mm-hmm. And now we have the more Trumpist influences in the party. Mm-hmm. And when was the last time a guy who signed a 2013 amicus brief in support of gay marriage, like, he just doesn't have the profile of someone who wins a Republican primary these days. And then, so his advantage is he's a Connecticut private, you know, private equity hedge fund guy. So presumably he'll be able to sell fund to the tunes of, you know, tens of millions to hundreds of millions of dollars. Okay. You're running against Dr. Oz. So the usual way that a candidate with sort of bad politics with a bad, who's a bad fit for the electorate gets out of it is you have spend them three to one in a primary, but Dr. Oz, is going to be able to match him dollar for dollar. Mm-hmm. So what are we doing here? Like I don't I don't understand why people think McCormick's gonna win. I when was the last time someone with McCormick's resume won a competitive non incumbent GOP primary? Well, that certainly takes care of Pennsylvania. I wanna ask you a question about the country at large. In twenty twenty, the Republicans suddenly gained eight points nationally among Hispanic voters. Number one, what's your best guess as to why? And number two, and more importantly, is this a trend that's going to be heading into the midterms? So I think the the main reason why Hispanics moved towards uh, the Republican Party is that they got a lot of culturally conservative Hispanic voters to vote more like cultural conservatives than they do Hispanics, right? Because mm-hmm. um, the reason the reason Democrats do so well with black voters, and I, I, I know the question is about Hispanics, but it's relevant here, is culturally conservative religious black voters still vote Democratic, right? The black uh-huh. church is an institution, is a political institution as much as a religious one. See the fact that Reverend Raphael Warnock is still preaching every Sunday um, down in Atlanta, right? Culturally mm-hmm. conservative black voters still vote for Democrats. That used mm-hmm. to be the case with Hispanics. That's less so the case now with Hispanics. Um, most of the swing, I've been able to sort of back of the envelope, um, calculate swing for um, for uh, religious Hispanics. Uh, uh-huh. And the the swing there was I think from some Pew data was like I think like thirty points from twenty sixteen to twenty twenty. And you got bigger swings. I mean there were swings with Hispanics everywhere, but like I focused on Texas a lot because well Texas was the thing I got very wrong in twenty twenty, so it's something I studied the most to try and be not wrong in the future. Um uh-huh. you saw you saw swings with Hispanics everywhere. You saw much bigger swings with base rural Hispanics in the Rio Grande at Hotel Paso than you did in Houston and Dallas because more urban Hispanics were more likely to still be Democrats because they were more likely to be Democrats for reasons not of identity but of belief, right? They're more likely to be to hold socially liberal views on abortion and gay marriage. The reason mm-hmm. Arizona didn't swing Arizona Hispanics didn't swing as much as Texas Hispanics. A greater share of the Hispanic population in Arizona is in Maricopa, is in you know, is in the, the, the metro areas, therefore more socially liberal. And the reason why we still won Nevada despite this huge swing against Democrats with Hispanics in a fairly Hispanic heavy state is mm-hmm. urban Hispanics didn't swing as much as rural Hispanics. And what's it mean for 2022? 
you're probably like there's a there's a South Texas uh, there's a te- there's a competitive South Texas uh, congressional district that GOP are probably going to win that and they're probably going to win it by more than Trump won it by just because mm-hmm. the these people are not cohesive Democrats they don't agree with the Democratic Party on some of the most important questions about the world you want to see and they're gonna like I don't think Democrats have a have a sizable or substantial path forward to get back a lot of those gains with Hispanics because the strategy that wins you back South Texas, becoming more culturally conservative, emphasizing, you know, culturally conservative worldviews, is a world where you have gotten rid of a lot of the reason why in South Lake Texas a mid-city between uh, Dallas and Fort Worth, Democrats have gotten, have, you know, there was a 30-point swing between 2012 and 2020. And the strategy mm-hmm. that wins you, that, that, that does you better in South Lake and Forsyth does you worse in South Texas. And Democrats aren't going to make the trade to win back rural, culturally conservative Hispanics because they're just going to focus on continuing to do better with socially liberal whites. Okay. With that, I'm going to send it over to Catherine. Catherine? It's me again. (laughs) Um, You mentioned uh, Reverend Warnock. Uh, What are your thoughts about the uh, Georgia Senate race? Have you listened to Herschel Walker? I mean, I have to listen to Herschel Walker because I have to know what's being said, but I'm not a huge fan of my time doing so. Um, <laughs> I, think I don't think gonna... he even knows what he's running for. Yeah, there are, there are moments when I'm unsure if he knows where he is or if he thinks this is just an elaborate Truman Show-esque um, thing that's happening to yeah. him. Uh, I think Warnock wins, but, like, okay, if the, if the election was tomorrow or Tuesday, I guess, Warlock would lose. But that's because Joe Biden's got a 42% approval. I have well, to believe that Joe Biden a, is going to get... We haven't had any... I have to believe that Joe Biden is going to get... debates or commercials or anything, so... Yeah, right? And so I think what's going to happen between now and... What's going to happen between now and, and November is Joe Biden is going to get more popular amongst Democrats because Democrats are going to realize, oh, God, we have an election right now we have to rally the flag, right? We are frustrated with, you know, Democrats are frustrated with him because, you know, we haven't gotten as much as we wanted or things have been, you know, you know, things haven't gone the way they were supposed to or whatever. Herschel Walker has a litany of uh, allegations of misconduct and abuse in his personal life. He's, Warlock has shown an ability to run a very good campaign. Him and Stacey Abrams on the ballot at the same time means that even if Democrats have a bad night generally, chances are the immaculate black turnout operation that Abrams uh, that Abrams has built through her 2018 campaign and through Fair Fight that got Wardock and John Ossoff elected last year. I think we know that the black turnout operation is going to be good enough, right? It can show up even on uh, even non even on non presidential election days, and I think I think Warnock wins. I think the combination of of the fact that he just will have endless amounts of money, right? Like him and Ossoff raised hundred million dollars, I think, for the runoff campaign together. Like yeah, well, Ossoff he, and him are just... very close, so Ossoff will put his put his shoulder in, no matter what. Every time he's asked to pitch in, he will do it. And the two well, of them are Warnock real just, good campaigners together. Just released, just Warnock just released his recent fundraising, and he ra- he has like twenty three million dollars or something. He's doing fine. I I, I, I I couldn't remember the exact number, but I knew it was impressive. But God, that's good. Yeah. And then Stacey Abrams yeah. raised nine since she since she announced. So I think I think there's going to be plenty of money. I just hope they know what to do with that. They've shown. The thing is, the, yeah, the Georgia Democratic Party, I think more than any Democratic Party of like a you know an important like of a swing state, they know what they're doing and they can run a surgical turnout operation. 
And I mean that is the highest compliment I can pay them. That twenty that twenty twenty one runoff campaign was magnificent. And they'll do it again. It was. Well that's all I have, so I'm gonna pass it back to David because I know he has a lot more questions for you. Thanks so much. Yeah, well I'll tell you what, my, the two thousand six view of me uh didn't even know what you said about the uh Democrats in Georgia <laughs> doing so well. Because um, it, it was not too long ago that we had a different different climate for sure. Well, um, Evan, you have spent so so generous to move up your time, spend all this time with us. Of course, we probably hadn't asked you about forty eight different races. They're just incredible, but we got got to you know be kind to your time. Um, before you leave us, though, let us know um, where people can read you because you know Catherine referenced the Substack, but I know your other places as well. So share our listeners. Um, all these different avenues. So follow me on Twitter at Scrimshaw because I tweet out links to everything I do. I have a Substack, Scrimshaw Unscripted.substack.com. It's a free Substack where I write about uh, American, Canadian, sometimes British, and during election periods, Australian politics. Um, it's a lot of Canada right now because my home province is going to do an election this year and, you know, the top of the show is happening. So, like the the leader of the Conservative Party of Canada got dethroned this week because of the convoy protests. So that's sort of been my focus, but plenty of writing about the U.S. I write a weekly political betting column for the lines where I go over races of interest, sort of talk about odds changes. And even if you don't care about the betting perspective necessarily, you can still read the column as a predictive column, right? You can still read it just for the race preview perspective of it, almost in a sense. Um, those columns are up every Monday. And if you're a fan of mine and you want to support me, or if you just want to, uh, you know, buy what I think is a good book, I wrote a book last year called Salvation in the Storm, and my pinned tweet on Twitter is the link to buy it through Amazon. So if you want to do that, you're free to as well. Yes, absolutely. Well, Evan, we're going to have to have you back on sooner than later. We'll probably also get to talk about the book next time, but, but given the situation in Canada, you being the only person we know that lives in Metro Ottawa, uh, at least maybe Tim and Kathy in that Metro Ottawa. You're my only person in Metro Ottawa. Um, we had to get you on to talk about it, so thanks for spending so much time with us. Glad to do it. Always appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, uh, Evan Scrimshaw just uh, covered so much with us. It was awesome, and we've got just a few more minutes, and, and let's kind of come home. Something that early in the week when I saw, I said, guys, got to be a topic. Um, Donald Trump cut an ad. Um, it wasn't the most glitzy, um, you know, high-production value ad I've ever seen, but it, it cut to the point that he was just – he attacked two people, um, you know, he attacked Stacey Abrams, but he attacked Brian Kemp. And I think since it's a, a primary ad, uh, Kemp is who um, has to be more concerned with it. I sent the link to both of y'all. Catherine, what were your thoughts on how impactful this ad might be on um, the, the uh, Republican primary? I'm really sorry, but I didn't watch it. I, I was really <laughs> busy at work this week, and I didn't have a chance to look at all the everything that – I got through my text, so I apologize for not looking at it. Plus, I just can't stand to listen to that man, so I'll let Tim comment on it. Okay, Tim. Well, as I viewed it, a thought suddenly hit me, and I I don't think I'm concerned anymore about thinking about how the governor's is going to defeat David Perdue. What I'm wondering now is how is Kemp going to beat Donald Trump? You 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 saw the ad, David, and you know Trump's ads are about Trump. <laughs> he is going to make this a personal contest between him and Governor Kemp because he despises this Republican governor. I guess, more than any Republican governor in the country. And the second thing I thought of, you know, this is just the beginning. 
If he's hit him this hard, this early, he's going to hit him again. And not only is he going to hit him in mass media, he's going to come up here. And people should not think that those massive rallies don't make a difference with Republican primary voters. They most certainly do. And so I'm wondering, and I'm going to ask you the question, David, how is Governor Kemp going to beat Donald Trump? I'm not sure, but you made a very astute point that he makes everything about him. Uh, This Since we've mentioned a little pro wrestling and politics, we're going to mention it again uh, when he main evented WrestleMania against um, uh, Vince McMahon. um, Bobby Lashley was actually the candidate representing – or the wrestler – combatant representing Donald Trump, and then um, Umaga uh, represented Vince McMahon. But it was about those two personalities. This feels that way. Um, you know, David Perdue's going to be on the ballot, but he is going to make it all about him. Um, and, right. and that's going to be interesting to see because right now the polls we've seen, and we got two good ones that we discussed last week um, where you know Brian Kemp was kind of holding David Perdue off. Now – this ad on social media where, you know, the, the insiders, you know, pass it around and, and um, watch it, that's not going to have the impact. Is it going to have a lot of points behind it to where pretty much every Republican voter sees it and then they have to make a decision to go against Donald Trump on Brian Kemp or are they going to be with him? And then, of course, if they go against him, what does that mean? And then, of course, I think you're right. He may spend a bunch of time on rallies in Georgia um, in, in different places, and how does that affect things, and then how does that affect the, the down-ballot races? Um, it's all about the points. I mean, if, if for some reason, you know, David Perdue's um, funding is lackluster and very few people see this, um, it, it might not have an impact, but you have to think it's going to move the polls. I kind of wish – just the political scientist in me that every Republican voter could see this the next week or two, then they could take a poll or two the week after that, and we could see if it moved the needle. I, I think that's what mm-hmm. we're going to have to watch for um, to know that. I mean, have y'all gotten any indications that a lot of people have seen this out ad outside of pipes like us, Catherine? No. I haven't heard it, I, and I didn't. I haven't seen it like on social media yet. But I wasn't mm-hmm. looking for it. So yeah, the thing is, you know how good Donald Trump is at getting free big media. He's going to talk about this and very loudly. Oh yes, all Republican primary voters are going to know what Donald Trump thinks about this race because he's going to make sure they do it, and the media is going to stick microphones in his mouth, and he'll be glad to tell them all about it. So this this is just the beginning. It's not just going to be Internet ads. You're going to see Trump, I think, if he despises Brian Kemp as much as he says he is, he's not going to let this go. And you're going to see him on the evening news in Atlanta and other places weighing in heavily on this. And, yes, every Republican voter in this state's going to know about it. Yep, I agree. Yeah. Right. And we're going to see how that, that fallout is and what that timeline's like. And so um, it seems that uh, David Perdue is getting the, the life jacket he needs because I think if he had to run this campaign on his own, <laughs> I, I would yeah, like agreed. Agreed. Um, yeah. Oh yeah. Well, um, we're so glad Evan joined us tonight, and just to kind of preview the next two shows. Next week is the Super Bowl, assuming Evan's correct, and you know that the playbook that happened in Ottawa can be used for helping the city of Los Angeles and the truckers, or either they just don't get organized. Um, the Super Bowl will be going on. We don't try to go against the um, most popular television event event of the year every year and then you know someone's like to watch it as well so we're going to pre-record an episode that'll drop in um prior to sunday 
Um, and and Tegan Goddard is going to come on the show with us from Political Wire. Uh, so we're so excited about interviewing Tegan Goddard, and we'll drop that show in um, prior to um, you know Sunday's regular you know episode time. So look for that. And then the next time we go live on February 20th uh, from Wisconsin, Dr. Anthony Trigoski is going to join us and talk to us about uh, the lay of the land in Wisconsin and also um, kind of familiarize us with some of the concepts in the book, The Politics of Resentment, um, an excellent book um, on, uh, you know, the state of Wisconsin affairs, particularly how rural Wisconsin um, residents view downstate Milwaukee and Madison. So we're really excited about those next two shows. But until then, in the Kudzu Vine. Good night, Good night, y'all. Good night, buddy. We are the heirs of that first revolution. Will a strong and united America still be a force for freedom and prosperity?